You are listening to National Security Law Today. I'm Elisa Poutit, and welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. This week, we continue our series on generative AI, deepfakes, and national security. How countries that threaten national security operate and use social media, AI, deepfakes, and other technology? Could it be as simple as they try to divide us? My guest tonight is Duwan Lee. No, not the K-pop sensation of the same name, but a national security expert in his own right. Mr. Lee is a technologist and national security expert who's worked on publicly funded analytic projects on aggregating, detecting, and analyzing large data sources on foreign and extremist information operations. He has extensively worked with federal innovation R&D programs from DARPA and tons of other acronyms and abbreviations. We're not going to go into them He's a highly accomplished individual. He's also worked with several Silicon Valley tech companies, leveraging machine learning and natural language processing models to detect and defeat foreign origins of information operations and cyber threats. That's a lot of words. He gets this whole foreign malign influence campaign. He's also founded two tech startups, scaling open source solutions to detect and defeat foreign origins of malign influence. And of course, he's published like crazy. You can find tons of his work, including in Foreign Affairs magazine. Some of these papers and works we're going to hyperlink in the notes. Now, one thing I want to emphasize here is that his work has focused on how extremist and foreign actors exploit the content ecosystem and emerging technologies to sort of undermine organic political processes and democratic values, obviously near and dear to the hearts of many committee members, including Suzanne Spaulding. Mr. Lee, it is a pleasure to have you. Thank you for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. I am truly humbled and excited to talk about this important topic with you. Let's start with some basics. We say these things several times, and I know we've explained it in other podcasts, but given your background, I feel like you're probably excellent at having to communicate this. So I'd like to know what is machine learning and what are natural language processing models? Machine learning is, in essence, a subset of what we broadly call artificial intelligence. It comes with its own connotations, but is as simple as what I call data mining and extrapolations combined. So instead of me coding a lot of if-then statements, I essentially design models to learn from a lot of what we call training data. And I just give it certain instructions to find patterns that are good for making predictions. With more data, then we can improve the fitness of this line fitting and extrapolations. So instead of giving a specific lines of if-then statements, we're essentially letting it learn from large volumes of training data so it can predict results with new data points much better. So in a way, it is not too complicated. It is just adaptive and repeated data mining and extrapolations. So essentially, it's teaching algorithms how to do line fitting really good so we can make really precise predictions. A lot of times people tend to use machine learning and NLP interchangeably. That's okay because if you apply the same characteristics to human language, so that's essentially what we call natural language processing, NLP. So again, it's a subset of what we broadly call artificial intelligence, But instead of using very specific data points, we're using human language as training data, right? So we're trying to line fit, hey, different combinations of words, phrases, punctuation, and things like that. So if I'm saying this, what am I going to say most likely next? So it's really about pattern recognition and extrapolation from the structures and sequences and combinations of human language. So in a way, they are very much interchangeable. One thing I really want to highlight here is that there is a lot of hype about GPT. It stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer, right? So again, it's a type of NLP designed to predict you know, what human language may do 
because it's trained on really large volumes of sequential data, right? So what is a good example of rich and complex sequential data? That is human language, right? So we always go from left to right. As long as we are in the West, there are certain countries where you may go right to left. Again, it's the same thing. It's sequential data. And I think this is why, for example, ChatGPT is really good at generating text because it can tell, okay, based on these questions, these prompts, there's a good chance that statistically speaking, this is what has to follow from the prompt question and so on and so forth. So it's really not too complicated, but you know, engineers tend to come up with new names <laughs> to describe these new models, but it's really very simple as large volumes of statistics and using them for extrapolation so we can make really good predictions about data points or human language. It does sound more simple when you describe it that way. The concern that we have, of course, right now as a country is that China and Russia have historically used social media and deep fakes as part of foreign malign influence efforts. We're, of course, looking right now to imagine how they might exploit this developing AI technology to take what they've been very successful at, at a very low cost, less than $100,000 for an effort to interfere with the 26 campaign and probably ongoing efforts to divide us every day. How might they take this technology and abuse it in a manner that would become a national security threat? I do think they represent new challenges. To me, from a strategic viewpoint, what enables these autocratic regimes to be able to exploit our content ecosystem is threefold. Number one, they can essentially reverse engineer some of these marketing or advertising targeting tools to find most vulnerable communities or individuals to influence. So it's not like, you know, they are building this tool themselves. You know, if you have a business account with Meta or with Twitter or even with LinkedIn, you can use their built-in, you know, marketing or advertising tools to find the most likely communities and people who will listen to your narrative stories and whatnot. And they become really good at essentially, you know, using some of these built-in tools to undermine our own media ecosystem. And number two, because there are so many open source, you know, tools right now that are primarily trained on English content. I think this is a really important difference to, to note here. And that is not all NLP models are created equal, not all large language models are created equal. Predominantly, they perform much better with, you know, our Western languages up to this point. So for autocratic countries, you know, they're essentially accessing some of these most advanced AI tools against our own media ecosystem. And I think number three is really what I call speed, scale, and essentially asymmetry. And that it is because they're using, they have access to this kind of AI-enabled tools, they can generate content much faster than before, right? scale. Also, they have built these global networks of like-minded, you know, actors, accounts, media outlets, domains, and so on and so forth. So now they can use these tools to generate content, you know, damaging content, malign content, misleading content much faster than before, right? But at the same time, it's not just the content because they built this broad global networks of affiliates, actors, accounts, and so on and so forth. Now they can push that content much faster than what we can counter, right? So essentially they're using the tools that we built to out amplify and drone out what we could say to essentially debunk or pre-bunk such malign content. So that's the second like, you know, big, you know, characteristic. The third one is something that I find incredibly problematic, especially right now. And that is especially between the Chinese Communist Party and the Kremlin, 
I definitely see a lot more coordinated collusion between the Kremlin and the Chinese Communist Party, especially in the information environment. We know with open source research that the Chinese Communist Party is spending literally billions of dollars co-amplifying Kremlin-aligned content that is mischaracterizing what's happening in Ukraine right now. That's the scale and reach they have engineered over the years, right? And this is really problematic because I understand the Kremlin is the most conspicuous adversary that we are perhaps more familiar with. But frankly, what's the GDP of Russia? Uh, 1.5 trillion, right? Yes, people have described it as nothing but a gas station, right? Yeah, but China's GDP is close to 18 trillion at this point. The amount, the resources, and the bureaucratic capacity they're bringing to this information environment is nothing we've seen before. That's what scares me because now, technologically, China is still far ahead of Russia, right? Russia still runs troll farms. They still do manual work to push malign influence into our media ecosystem. The CCP can do it with AI models. I think that's something we're not paying enough attention to at this point. Okay. And you talk about this machine that is the the bureaucratic girth of China. You make an incredible point. It is enormous. But let's talk a little bit about some of the cultural differences that may place China at advantage in this ecosystem that otherwise moves fast. And one of the things that China does is it develops 50-year plans, 100-year plans. It thinks long-term. And we, by contrast, are thinking Mm -hmm. about quarterly profits, two-year election cycles. Russia is an interesting adversary as well, because as you know, Putin loves to reference ancient history. So I don't know how far ahead he thinks. You know, there have been defectors from the KGB who have talked about his 50-year strategy to divide us, which has been their stated goal. He also reflects back hundreds of years in his speeches, times predating the United States. They must have both short-term and long-term goals. And I wonder if you could talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about their long-term and short-term goals, and if you're able to compare them to sort of our general way of handling Mm -hmm. things, I'd I'd like to hear your thoughts. Yeah, that's a really tough question, and I can only speak from my own experience and observations, but I did spend a lot of years with the federal government and and especially with DOD and the IC. So I I do have some good observations to share. Having said that, I want to like, you know, examine a couple of assumptions first. Number one, pretty much everyone I know in my own community, which is technology and national security, they subscribe to this narrative that somehow China has this long-term vision, long-term strategy that got all these yearly plans planned out and they're executing them with perfection and we are just like falling behind. I think that itself is disinformation to show that the West is essentially, you know, withering away. It's pointless to fight. Right, to quote Marx, right? (laughs) Look, the Chinese Communist Party is not 10 feet tall. It is not. I'll give you a very specific example here. So when I was teaching with DOD, perhaps like 10 years ago, and this is when you know Xi Jinping just came into power, right? He's consolidating his power base within the Politburo and, and more broadly within the Communist Party, right? He made this big announcement. It's called Made in China 2025, right? And it was essentially a strategic vision that China will lead in you know, all these strategic industries, right? And leaving the West, you know, far behind. Yes, that Have was uh, quite, that? quite covered. Yes, by the news. Yes. Have you noticed that the Chinese Communist Party has decided not to talk about this anymore because they failed. They failed miserably to achieve those lofty goals, right? Time and time again, think about the Belt and Road Initiative, Digital Silk Road, and so on and so forth. There are tons of mistakes and failures the Chinese Communist Party has made. I'll give you another example. The Chinese Communist Party always said, you know what, we're going to empower 
the provincial governments, the city governments, we're going to give them tons of support. They can do their own economic development and we're going to lift literally tens of millions out of poverty. That was a narrative. Do you know how many people are waiting to get into their first apartment that has been abandoned by their developers and so on and so forth because all these provincial governments and city governments took on too much debt, right? And we've watched Evergrande. Yeah. We've watched the debacle exactly. that was Evergrande, right? That's my point. So if the CCP has this grand vision and this incredible execution capacity, we shouldn't be hearing this news, right? I'll give another example. I hear from my friends, especially in the national security community, you know what? You know, the American auto market will be destroyed by cheap Chinese EVs in the next 10 years, right? We're going to lose this industrial base. I think that's also Chinese propaganda because if you look into what's happening in China, they're literally like kilometers after kilometers of abandoned EVs because they're not sold. They're just collecting dust while being rotted in real time. So again, a massive failure of industrial planning and execution, right? So I understand we have this assumption that the CCP as a rising power is much better at mobilizing resources and using those resources to essentially set strategic initiatives in motion and then try to essentially replace us as the global hegemonic power, right? I think that's an assumption that we need to re-examine in the reality of all these failed major policy initiatives that we can clearly see from the CCP, right? Same goes to the Kremlin. You know, when the Kremlin invaded Ukraine in February 24th, 2022, right? Pretty much every friend of mine in the defense analytic community said that Ukraine would fall in a week, right? I don't think- That's right. I mean, that was the talk at the time. Exactly, right? So again, the Kremlin is not 10 feet tall. The CCP is not 10 feet tall, right? We are not as bad as we think we are. I don't think we should suffer from strategic hubris. I totally understand that we should never do that, right? However, I do think some of us actually buy into that strategic propaganda coming from the Chinese Communist Party and the Kremlin and lose faith in the resilience, right? And and the innovative spirit of our open society, of our democratic institution and so on and so forth. And I think that faith and that confidence, I think is a prerequisite ingredient for us to compete more effectively against those autocratic regimes. It's encouraging, but I do wonder at times if we're following the counsel of Sun Tzu, where we always assume our enemies are bigger than we think. Yeah, that notion is not cost-free, at least in my mind, right? Especially when we are trying to ensure that the rule-based international order that we have underpinned in the past 75 years. It's not just in our own country. You know, we're looking at Africa, we're looking at South America, we're looking at Central Asia and so on and so forth, right? And I almost feel like, you know, we are withdrawing our diplomatic and economic endeavors because we have lost faith in what we have accomplished in the past 75 years. I'll give you a very good example. Most of my friends in the national security community always say that we're losing in Africa, we're losing in South America, right? Well, that is not entirely untrue, but I can always find so many local stories talking about Chinese racism in Africa, right? Russian, like, you know, criminals in South America and so on and so forth, right? Wagner militia in Africa, right? Yes, yes. And, and, and the kinds of awful things they do in those environments, right? So we don't have to play the same dirty game as the CCP or the Kremlin. We just have to look into the right places, illuminate the right real stories, right? I think we are actually a lot more competitive than most people think we are. Another example, we've been working very quietly, but also very aggressively to help Taiwan against Chinese aggression in the sea domain, in the air domain, in the cyber domain, in the information domain, 
And I think we've done a good job because look, another like you know, policy initiative that she is not talking about anymore openly, and that is by 2027, right? We will have unified with Taiwan by force, right? Have you noticed that the CCP is actually walking back from the statement? Now they're saying, well, you know, it could be a coexistence. It could be through diplomatic channels. It could be a political reunification, right? They could do be through fail. a foreign, foreign campaign, right? Using data. Yeah. The only difference is that when our like elected officials mm. or government officials you know, essentially walk back on such lofty statements, we have our own in a fourth estate, the media. That's right. We, right. we do. And we have national security lawyers, councils, keeping those officials as accountable as possible. We don't always succeed. We often fail to. I get that, right? However, it is very transparent when we fail on certain large strategic initiatives and thus we think that we suck, right? <laughs> the benefit of the Chinese Communist Party and the Kremlin is that when they fail, they just rewrite what they've said before, or they don't mention it ever again because they control their mm. respective information environment so well, right? So we think that they don't fail, but that is far from the truth in my mind. I often think that they drop these topics because they're so busy disappearing the latest diplomat, right? As they as has happened Absolutely. in the last month. Yes. yes. So to me, like, you know, the way, you know, we end up thinking that we are not as competitive, in fact, is an indication of our competitive strength, right? You know, it is because we still have this forced estate clinging onto its relevancy, right? That's so many of us still trying to maintain the integrity of our democratic and public institutions. And I think we don't just appreciate those efforts enough because those efforts are non-existent in China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, and the list goes on and on. So, of course, when I meet someone like you, I often want to talk about solutions. And I know you are not a lawyer and you're tremendously humble in your presentation, but I'm looking out at social media companies. Obviously, they have to, they're publicly held overwhelmingly, and they have to show return on investment, shareholder value. And then I look out at companies like the New York Times, which continues to lose money hand over foot. But concentrating for a minute on companies that have been given quite a free reign since, I believe, 1993, was it when the Telecommunications Decency Act, Section yep, yep. 230? Section 230. Communications, yep. it was. I think it was just called the Communications Decency Act 230, yep. gave yep. them a really broad immunity in the hope that they would you know, become these huge, wonderful companies that they are. But the truth is that they've been highly exploited. And we look around at companies like Twitter, which has eviscerated its review staff. And many of us wonder if there are solutions beyond just this effort to algorithmically sweep content. Mm -hmm. If mm -hmm. there is something in this AI space, or if even if it doesn't exist, if one conceive of such a thing that would allow these companies to shut down anything emanating from troll farms, to take mm -hmm. a better stewardship of the information they have benefited from and their shareholders have benefited from. I just wanted to probe you on this issue because they're always asking to be regulated and we never ever do. But I'm also wondering if they had activist shareholders who could hold them accountable on a technological level for something, what in your mind could that look like? Let me offer two buckets of comments in the regard. Number one, what has been tried? And, and number two, what we could try more, right? We, I think, tried a lot of essentially bagging to key tech platforms in the information ecosystem, right? And if you look at you know, what we have done since, let's just say 2016, because that was definitely a big awakening for us, right? And uh, we've been to asking all these tech platforms, look, you know, you guys have so many users, you guys are making so much money, 
Can't you do a better job at detecting or removing malicious content or problematic users and so on and so forth, right? And a lot of times, and, and trust me, working in Silicon Valley, a lot of these people who are doing amazing things at these tech platforms, they're my friends and they do their best within their sort of, you know, sandboxes, so to speak. I would call them like, you know, typically, you know, there are three lines of efforts that have been made. Number one is what we call content moderation. And that is essentially, hey, if I say something harmful, we're going to remove it, right? Um, number two is like, you know, hey, deplatforming. If you are misbehaving, you know, amplifying Russian content on this platform all the time, we're going to essentially either suspend or, you know, remove your account, right? We've seen this happening with certain high-profile politicians in the past few years. Problem is they can be forgiven and come back to the same platform doing the same thing, right? Number three is asking for, you know what, can you do better regulation? Can you do better legislation and so on and so forth? Now, the problem with number one is that content moderation kicks in when the intended harm is done. So it doesn't work, right? How do you know when something is bad to remove because the bad thing has been done, right? So right, you can't unring a bell. It's after No, that. because I cannot right. unsee what I've seen on those platforms, right? right? People no. who think that content moderation works is just people who are to benefit from more money going into content moderation. Deep platforming doesn't work because to me, that is really privatized censorship, right? I don't think anybody on either side of the ideological spectrum want to see a fully privatized censorship, right? It doesn't work. It's a private decision they're going to make. Guess what? Even for like, you know, Meta, even though they have this oversight board, right? They have reversed a lot of key decisions in the past five, six years. That could nothing, there's nothing good coming for the public from those decisions. Number three is really like, hey, I don't know whether you've seen some of these ad campaigns coming from large tech platforms. I'm not going to name names, but we want more regulation. We want more legislation and so on and so forth, right? Well, I heard what Mr. Zuckerberg said to Congress, begging for legislation only to be followed by the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Yes. Yes, yes. Again, I'm not going to name names, but I think that's a very <laughs> good example, Alyssa. But guess what? You know, every year we have this consortium of lobbies on the hill, right? And every year, all these platforms have been spending more and more, right? Lobbying against, you know, armies, armies of lobbyists, right? Yeah. So last year, they spent about $70 million on lobbying alone, which was a substantial increase from 2021 where they spend about $55 million, right? I'm talking about only the top five, right? And guess what? Last year, Chinese tech companies also spent about $70 million for lobbying on the hill. So- Okay, that's, that's not great. Oh, TikTok, you know, I mean, have you seen a lot of, you know, new ad campaigns where small business owners are saying that, you know, without TikTok, right? You know, they cannot, you know, make money. They'll, they'll go bankrupt and so on and so forth. Veterans are going to suffer. Yeah, veterans they're organizations. Not, I've seen organic. that. Uh, who doesn't organic. like a veteran? I mean, come yes. on. Right? So they're all professionally done by PR firms working really hard with a lot of these lobby firms on the hill. And actually, there are tons of open sources to validate or authenticate any of these numbers that I'm sharing with you on this conversation. So there is that, right? So I do think there are different solutions that we can consider. At least like, these are big conversations. And uh, because like, you know, I'm involved with the National Security Law Center at Georgetown, this is something that I deeply care about personally. I mean, it may entail a lot of conversation, but let me put it this way first, right? I do think we need to start by reconceptualizing what information or content is, right, in our own country. So right now, the basic incentive structure of the content ecosystem is traffic monetization and advertisements, right? Yeah. What you see on this platform, they say, oh, you can use it for free. No, it's not free. They're harvesting your data so they can generate revenue by trafficking your attention, your clicks, your behavioral patterns to advertisers. That is the main driving economic engine of the content ecosystem, right? Right. 
Micro-targeting, uh, yes. Yes. Also, these micro-targeting tools are available to anybody who's willing to pay like $20 a month to get the business account, right? Like Russia, like China. Yes. So <laughs> so I guess like what, what I'm going with is, you know, idea here is that, Elisa, as long as we treat user-generated information and content as a commodity for companies to exploit and take advantage of, I don't think we're going to solve this problem. I've been trying to solve this problem, working through this ecosystem. Every time I try something new, I realize that there's a reason this is not working because it goes against the main economic engine of the entire ecosystem. I think there are certain examples we should consider. And then I I will offer some quasi-legalistic pontification. That's all I can do in legal matters. I think we should start trading user-generated information and content as infrastructure. For example, when I'm getting a bottle of water, even from a godforsaken gas station in the middle of nowhere, as long as the cap is intact, I know there are certain standards that enforce the manufacturer to put drinkable water in that bottle. I'm not going to feel too nervous about whether I'm going to die from drinking that water. Same goes for getting some food on the road, right? You know why? Because we treat water, food, electricity, air as basic public goods. Companies can still make lots of money by selling food, by selling bottled water, by selling electricity, and so on and so forth. So it does not attack the fundamental vitality of our economy, right? However, it does make things safer for us to enjoy those services, those goods, and so on and so forth. So I can go on without eating or drinking, perhaps for days. In this day and age, Alyssa, I don't think I can survive or do my job without consuming online information or content, even for five minutes. I get like a feature lot of reactions if I don't have access to the internet because it's so vital to what I do. You can't even uh, attend grammar school now in the United exactly, States where right? everything is done on the computer. Right. Exactly. So when I say, hey, information as infrastructure, right? And then, you know, I mean, I have, you know, a lot of friends well distributed across the ideological spectrum. And some of them may think, you know what? You know, I mean, don't you think that may actually undermine the spirit of innovation, the pace of our innovation? and the technological lead we have on the CCP or the Kremlin. And I say, no, it'll be the opposite, right? Because like OpenAI, right, or Microsoft, they will know exactly how to drive innovation faster. Now, because we have signposts, we have clear traffic lights, right? We have clear standards and liabilities. So when they go off and put dirty water into that bottle, and I drink it, I get sick, right? And I end up in the ER for seven days, I have remediation mechanisms, right? Because the company that put that dirty water in the bottle now is liable for the harm caused on me. I don't know why that's so impossible for digital information, Elisa. And that's what the Supreme Court said is there was no law. There was no guardrail. There was nothing that they could lean upon. There was nothing holding the internet companies, the social media companies accountable. And I think this is where the second layer of what I consider a solution space requires like really comprehensive legal surveys for all of us, right? The reason I say is that, for example, you know, what constitutes you know, digital harm in public health may not align with what may constitute harm for reproductive health care, right? It may not align with what digital harm may look like for, you know, voter registrations, right? Or it may look very different exactly. for access to health care and, and so on and so forth. In all these specific issue areas, we actually have legal standards, right, or regulatory thresholds and frameworks to define this is the minimum. If you go below this, you're going to become liable. You may get away with this, right, but eventually we'll have this 
you know, agencies and programs that will monitor whether you are going below this threshold, right? In other words, when it comes to like sexual harassment, we have a legal framework to deal with hate speech or sexual harassment and so on and so forth, right? But also, you know, we have, you know, legal precedents showing, hey, this may be specific conditions, you know, certain kind of special circumstances where this harm took place. And thus, we can look at this legal precedence to adjust how this legal framework applies to this specific case and so on and so forth. We are not doing that just because it's happening in the digital environment. So I think it's not like, you know, we need new laws against AI, right? I personally think that would be really ill-advised. I don't think we need new laws against social media, right? The first thing we have to do is doing these legal surveys to see which existing legal frameworks actually apply to different types of harms and damage that could and are happening in the media ecosystem. I think, you know, when you essentially like, you know, filter through all these existing legal frameworks and what applies and what doesn't apply. Now we can think about, you know what? There is certain areas where we need new legislation. We haven't done you know, homework yet. I think that's why tech companies are also frustrated because they are right about one thing. And that is, look, don't look at us to fix this, right? Tell us what that you know, threshold is. And then we will change our product and then we will update our algorithms and so on and so forth. So that's an interesting statement, you know, a fact-based analysis. And I wonder what that would look like if a special committee could take that on to do the research or not. So I'm going to mull that. I wanted to circle back to something that you talked about a little bit. And I, I think a lot of our listeners will understand what AdSense is, what it does, that your, your Google advertising number. But I wanted to circle back to where the foreign malign influence is often directed. And it is done through the kind of micro-targeting that was previously used to sell goods and services. But we have interviewed a number of social scientists and technologists over the years. We have learned that there are certain people more susceptible to foreign influence influence campaigns than others. These include, sadly, older people and people living in rural areas of the United States. Is that information that companies or the government could use to counter these efforts at foreign influence? In other words, is there some tool that could be used to turn what the exploitation of these companies like AdSense, I'm, I'm just using AdSense because it's the one that comes to mind, but these mm -hmm. companies that are fantastic at micro-targeting. They do a great job. Is there some way that we could upend that to turn it on its head and use that micro-targeting or have the United States use that micro-targeting tool somehow in the reverse to reverse engineer any exploitation? Mm -hmm. I think, you know, again, I, I may sound like a broken record a little bit here, but when I made that, you know, bottled water analogy that was very intentional, right? Because it doesn't matter where you buy that bottle of water in a big city or in a rural area, right? Because the standards apply to everywhere. So we have this national jurisdiction, right? When it comes to clean air, electricity. I mean, some states have a little more power. I find it very problematic, especially places like Texas that are not managing their own electricity supplies these days, but that's a different conversation, right? Now, that is pretty philosophical and grandiose. So how do we go about concretizing such solutions? And I think there are two elements to this conversation, Alisa. Number one, I am actually working with a lot of you know, large language models myself. So like in earlier, I said these are generative pre-trained transformers. Pre-trained means that it has essentially learned from like a vast volume of human language data. Sometimes just for the kick of it, I ask these models, hey, I see this story on this news outlet. Give me its you know, level of bias. You know, do you see any logical fallacies in this story? You know, in terms of, you know, ideological leaning, you know, which way does it go? Hey, can you tell me where this source is actually located? Has it supported, you know, the Kremlin in terms of invading Ukraine in the past and so on and so forth? My God, 
these models, when they are prop, you know, properly used, I'll be honest with you, they're much smarter than me. They can find the provenance of this content much faster than I can, right? Perhaps I'm oversharing in this conversation with this stuff, but you know, part of what I'm trying to build is, you know, everybody has a cell phone, right? You know, and then you can actually put a, a plugin on your phone because how do we consume content either through the phone, through the iPad or through the computer, right? It's through the screen, right? But what if the screen tells you, hey, these are the biases, these are the local fallacies. Oh, by the way, this author is actually in St. Petersburg, not in DC or not in San Francisco, right? Oh, by the way, you know, this outlet has attacked reproductive health issues for the past like, you know, 10 years, right? And these solutions do exist. Problem is that they're very clunky. They're very manually driven, right? And they mm. cover a minute fraction of the content ecosystem. Again, coming back to GPT, they're literally pre-trained on, right? Like, you know, everything they could scrape in the open internet is a really powerful tool in the regard. Can it be misused? Absolutely. Just like a hammer, I can use a hammer to destroy a house or build a house, right? So let's not you know, throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? Let's focus on building this solution, building these use cases that can help our nation, our fellow Americans, and our national security. To me, that possibility is not science fiction. This is like, you know, present possibilities right now. I'll give you another example. Cybersecurity is something that we struggle quite a bit to scale against adversaries, right? You know, China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, there's a whole slew of them and mercenaries, right? Right now in the United States, every day, we are about 1 million short for cybersecurity professionals between the public sector market as well as in the private sector, right? However, pre-trained transformers, I know there are startups, right? Working very closely with you know, government programs to build what we call chat ops for cybersecurity. So we can ingest and enrich really vast volumes of all cybersecurity incidents, incident reports, non-malware, non-phishing techniques, and so on and so forth, right? Yeah. So whenever you see a reasonable prediction that this is happening to your organization, right? It can alert you about those vulnerabilities. In fact, the technology is so mature now, this kind of you know, large models can patch when they identify cyber vulnerabilities, right? They can patch those vulnerabilities automatically. We need to really focus on how to use this technology and this innovation to enhance what our country represents, not only here, but also abroad, right? Because the alternative is what really scares me, right? I'm pretty sure you're familiar with Huawei, their 5G, 5.5G equipment. Right. And then, you know, essentially using those 5G infrastructures for global surveillance and micro-targeting against dissidents and so on and so forth. I think that's the alternative. And I think that's the alternative I refuse to let my children live in. I'm happy to report and also sad to report, though, this week, and we'll hyperlink this in the notes to the cast. The British completed a study of China influence, and it was not a good look for the British government. But among the concerns that they raised were sort of the ubiquity of Huawei 5G equipment, which had been purchased for one simple reason. It was cheaper. Chipper, I think, is true, but also I think there is a lot of affiliated influence campaigns. I, I don't think a lot of times they are fair competitions between Huawei against perhaps other Western companies and so on and so forth. Are they more price competitive? Yes. Um, mm. Are they doing things to ensure that the price competitiveness leads to contracting? Yes, too, right? And I think, you know, I think this is also a very good segue to add just one more, you know, concern I have. And I don't think this is just me. In fact, I think there was hearing for Lieutenant General Timothy Hoff, Biden's nominee for NSA. I think he, he made it very clear, you know, that he is deeply concerned about the fusion of 
AI enable cyber attacks with disinformation that will try to undermine our 2024 election. That was really his key thesis for his responses to the Senate uh, committee, right? I completely agree because I've seen this happening, not only in Ukraine, but literally in the past two or three years, I've seen this new like conversion of techniques, right? I call it hack and disinform. So if I suspect that a possibly a Russian guy is trying to promote this idea that America is so polarized, there's no chance that democracy could be restored in America. By the way, a lot of my fellow Americans buy into that narrative. I always challenge them, do you know who started the narrative? Do you know who's amplifying the narrative that we are so polarized, there's no way that democracy could survive in America? It's not us. It is Chinese outlets and Russian outlets pushing the stories into our media ecosystem. And because we are so self-critical, we end up buying into those propaganda stories in my mind. Having said that, right, what they are experimenting with quite a bit is that, you know what, we can essentially build all this malware or phishing in our software to hijack hundreds of thousands of accounts concurrently and push AI-generated disinformation through this outlets or accounts that already have large followings. I think that is the new threat factor I'm seeing most frequently from the CCP and the Kremlin. For example, you know, they can replicate like hundreds, hundreds of thousands of SIM cards, right? Use the SIM cards to log onto, you know, different social media accounts, right? Or blogs and so on and so forth and concurrently push out all these coordinated messages that AI generated. I think that's what we're seeing right now, and it's going to only scale toward 2024. That's, I think, what we should be really working to solve. Well, I think we're going to have to wrap it up, but these are brilliant thoughts. And I have to say, I'm privileged to speak to you. It's been a pleasure. And I wish you luck in your private endeavors. And I hope that some of them go in the direction of solutions to these massive challenges that we face. And I found that you sounded an optimistic note that I think is going to make a lot of our listeners sleep a little bit better to hear your words. Thank you so much for having me. I promise you by the time I come back to your podcast, I'll be happy to share some of the scalable solutions. And I say scalable solutions because... We have some of these solutions already. Problem is that when it comes to election, that belongs to state and local election officials. They are really terribly resourced to deal with this kind of threat at this point. So unless you make these solutions widely available, and, and this is where you cannot just build solutions to sell at a premium to enterprise organizations. I think that business model does not serve our nation too well. Thank you so much. Before we sign off, we wanted to add a short segment we're calling America the Unified. In a time where one of America's greatest threats is its internal divisions, NDAAs are full of writers and members of Congress feel okay with adding anything to the NDAA because it's the one piece of legislation that must pass every year, no matter what. It helps us to remember history. In this time of political division, I'd like to cite you back to an order. July 26, 1948, and it read something like this. By virtue of the authority vested in me as the President of the United States by the Constitution and the statutes of the United States, and as Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces, it is hereby ordered as follows. It is the policy of the President that there shall be equality of treatment and opportunity for all persons in the armed services, without regard to race, color, religion, or national origin. This policy shall be put into effect as rapidly as possible, having due regard for the time required to effectuate any necessary changes without impairing efficiency or morale. I'm giving you something from a column written by former Washington Post columnist Walter Pincus here, and this is accurate history. With these words, President Harry Truman bypassed Congress and signed Executive Order 9981-9981, which mandated the desegregation of the U.S. military. At the time, this was a highly controversial step, especially 
among military leaders and pause elected politicians. Journalists covering defense for the New York Times, that now much maligned bastion of the fourth estate, called this order extremely dangerous nonsense to make the army other than one thing a fighting machine. In the middle of what seems like some of our differences in 2019, President Trump was in the White House. He signed and passed the 2020 NDAA. It required the Defense Department to expand its diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. And those programs were the very ones that governed whom it hired, whom it promoted, and how troops treated each other. Our military has gone on to be a model of excellence, resilience, and opportunity for many. Another thing it might be helpful to remember is on September 23rd of 1957, President Eisenhower ordered National Guard troops to Little Rock, Arkansas. Those Guard troops were comprised of mostly white Southern men, and they went to assist in the integration of schools in the South. And they did help integrate the schools in the South, and they did it well. Just a small reminder that together we're stronger. Thank you for joining us. Our guest tonight has been Duwan Lee, technologist and national security expert. We'll hyperlink to some of Mr. Lee's articles in our notes. Remember to subscribe to NSLT on your listening app of choice. And if you like and can, please rate us. It helps us move up. Contact us with any feedback you may have. For now, you can reach us at ABA NATSEC. We're also on threads now. I'm happy to report you who. And you can also reach us the old fashioned way by email, which is at national security at americanbar.org. That's our email address. Please share this cast with a friend. Our producer and writer is me, Elisa Poteet, always here at my individual capacity. Francis Berkham is our editor and my co-producer. Rebecca Salido is our program manager. My other producer is Holly McMahon, along with all the amazing leaders of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates, or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.